Welcome in. Beautiful, sunny Monday morning post-Super Bowl. Glad to be in the chair this morning helping out while Paul is on his uh, second chapter of his uh, leisure cruise. There with listeners and his bride and everybody else, Dave Rieger, Danielle. How are you guys? I missed you. We're doing good. Good to hear you. Yeah. How was uh, the waste management? Golf it was pretty out. miserable. Golf course. Golf. It- it was pretty miserable. I'm, I, I can't remember the last time I was in the beautiful desert of Scottsdale and was so anxious to get home. We had absolutely horrific weather for the Pro-Am, which is the only day that really matters to me. I played a couple rounds ahead of time, met up with some friends. My wife was with me, had a great time in the first couple of days. But the Pro-Am itself, you guys, it was misery. It was 50. It was blowing wind and the rain came down sideways. We had about a I would say a two mile walk once play got called. We were in the fourth fairway and it started hailing. I mean, real hail too. And I actually got cuts on my bald head from the hail. It was about a two mile walk. We were miserable, freezing, wet. And then the event got called off and the Thunderbirds and all the charitable organizations that set that up, um, they were pretty dejected. It's a, it's a heck of an event to set up. Um, the golf tournament too, of course, but the pro-am is just one of the biggest charitable events in the country every year. So it was a shame. Glad to be home. Yeah. I was reading about how they, uh, they stopped alcohol sales. People were getting in for free. They weren't checking tickets. They were getting into VIP, uh, areas that they weren't, that they didn't belong in. And, uh, yeah. I heard it was just a mess. Look, it's about, it's a half a million people or so that are there at the peak Friday and Saturday and not half a million at once, not collectively. And so that, that kind of environment is not conducive to um, stoppage of play and weather when you're not, they're uncovered. I mean, most people don't have the money to be in the big VIP hospitality tent, so on and so forth. So you're just walking out there in the open. It's the desert. And when weather like that comes in, basically all you have is sloppy, muddy sidewalks and trails and drunk people everywhere. And it was a melee. I mean, it's you know, basically brother, it turned into Burning Man. Yeah, it was disgusting. My brother works the FBI unit out there that does counterterrorism. He was on site, and he he's sending me text messages going, you should see this place this year. It was worse than last year. How'd you like the Super Bowl? You know, I uh, obviously would would have liked a different outcome, but I kind of thought that Kansas City would win. But it was a game that uh, kind of was going – it, it kind of was like a, a, a decent game that turned into like a great game at the end. Um, yeah, last handful of minutes and overtime was yeah. was pretty cool. You know, you, get, you watch the commercials, you watch some of the action. I think you know all us Detroiters still have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. Yeah. Wish we were there, that kind of thing. Saw a lot of people on social that. media that that felt that the Lions would have had a great chance against either of the teams last night. At least that's what they felt. Yeah. These fans, they, they, they might and, have. Yeah, they might have for sure defense on yeah. display. Anthony mm-hmm. Anthony Bellino is going to join us in the second hour. He'll do a little bit of a a recap, and we can get some perspective on Detroit. You know, you're supposed to be lo- watching. Like whether you're in sales or in finance or whatever it might be, you watch the top dogs and you try to emulate and learn from them. What can we do? What are they doing that's successful? Clearly, Kansas City, even after a rough season where, you know, we beat them first game of the year and then they lost four or five more games to not only good teams, but some subpar teams. Then they come yeah. back and win the game. You know, it's interesting um, that to, to find out today that the 49ers had no idea of the rules of the overtime where Kansas City had said that they had gone over that in the preseason. Yeah, it so, is interesting. So, so that right there uh, tells you a lot, you know, unfortunately coaching, for, for, for the 49ers. With, uh, with Andy Reid. What was your take? And maybe Danielle wants to chip in too. What's your take on the controversy about this uh, lift your everybody's voice and sing the Black National Anthem? 
that's getting a lot of press today. It's not the first year that they've done it. I have mixed opinions on this. What's your take? I, you know, I, I feel that if they want to uh, go ahead and do it, it, I have no problem with it. Danielle, any, any difference there? I don't know. I have no opinion. Look, I'll tell you, I've softened over the years on this kind of stuff. I was really upset years ago when players were kneeling for the national anthem. I thought much too much was made out of that, but I thought it was in bad taste to begin with. So here's my take on it. A, this is a sport that everyone enjoys watching. It is absolutely America's pastime at this point, and it's dominated by black men. And from from a cultural standpoint, if this is the idea to say, listen, you guys have been up and down through the ringer, let's say, we're going to have this song there to honor the the cultural aptitude that we're we're shooting for. Fine. I don't care. I I, I probably would have years ago. No one's declaring this the new national anthem for the black community. That's just what pop culture is referring to it as. So when Matt gets who, you know, how much I adore Matt gets in his, his brilliance, when he says he's boycotting this and it's a tragedy and it, it should not be absolutely they're exploiting. Come on. No, they're not. No, I thought oh. it, it, it should be. It was fine. I got, I had no, uh, sure, I had no issue man. with it. But on the other side of that equation, to think about how ridiculous it is. You know, how many Democrats last night or left-leaning people in general were upset that so many people in the audience were sitting during that song? Right. Yeah. It, well, not, did I miss the memo? Was that an official song that the government said, this is going to be our national, our new national anthem and you need to stand for it? I wouldn't have stood. I wouldn't have even known. I don't even know what the song sounds like. Yeah, you know, if you're not, if you don't know what exactly is going on, then you can't be expected to know that you have to stand. So then people should not get uh, upset at you about that. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk commercials later in the program to a gal named uh, Sheila Rondo is going to come on. She's an advertising expert. You know, what was a big home run? What was just funny? Um, was there anything that was a real, you know, tug at your heartstrings type? Jonathan Savage will join us at 1218, uh, just around the break from this. Give us an update. We haven't really talked Middle East um, in, in a while the same way we did. And also the, the, the crumbly ruling. I know it came down last week. I was obviously out of town. I'm sure you guys touched on it. I guess I'm still hazy, rigor to a large degree on what the tipping point was that is putting Crumbly, the mom, in jail, Jennifer Crumbly. It prison, really. I think they're just. I think they're. I think really. I think they're the. Uh, they're, they're just sending a message that you know parents need to play a bigger role in their in their kids' lives, and you need to know what's going on. And uh, if they're if your kids are going to do something this horrible, that now you're going to be held responsible. You know, you have to know what's going. You have to play a bigger role and know what's going on. Yeah, and it wasn't that long ago I was doing the show for a week, and I, I think it was uh, Marie that had a story about the findings that a third-party investigative team had done on the Oxford High School and found so many discrepancies in what should have been done, protocols that weren't followed correctly, so on and sure, so forth, true. that allowed this to happen. Right. Now, surely the, the mom and the dad are the most responsible party in terms of the son. They should have seen Correct. this. They shouldn't have furnished him with a weapon, so on and so forth. Right. But I mean, clearly there's a hurting woman who lost her son, sure. essentially, right? Of course, yeah. And now feels imminently responsible for the yeah. deaths of all these other I people. I mean, they found they found uh, they found the same they found you know with Uvalde when that that report came out recently and said it and they did they did a lot of things wrong. So it seems like um, as much training that goes into a situation like an active shooter in a school, it seems like um, maybe with all the training that uh, we're still not prepared for something like this. 
I guess I just want to know, and if we're, Todd Flood will join us later too. One of the things that I wonder is if the school was that convinced that the stuff that he was scribbling and talking about was that concerning to call the parents in, why didn't the school just send him home, essentially suspend him? Well, I, I know they tried. I thought they, I, I thought they tried to, and then the parents didn't take him home. Yeah, maybe I missed that part. I, look, we'll ask Todd that because I think that there's a couple of things that are, are stuck in my cry. Like, what what was the tipping point that really makes her guilty? Clearly, she didn't do a very good job as a parent, but she loves her son, too. She didn't shoot anybody. Strange stuff. We'll be back with uh, Jonathan Savage in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. As we move on through the day, we uh, get to check in with one of our, our best pals on this show. Jonathan Savage joins us. Uh, from London, Fox News correspondent, WJR contributor. Jonathan, thanks for joining the program. Every time I talk to you, it seems to be about the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas and, and Palestine and the Gaza Strip. And that situation is not only not getting better, it seems to uh, late, be getting worse again, airstrikes uh, nonstop in the last couple of days. What's the status as it sits now? Yeah, that's right, Chris. Um, and there are concerns about what comes next. Let's just bring you up to date with what happened overnight, a fairly significant development, I think you will agree. Um, Israeli forces managed to rescue two hostages from inside Gaza. It was uh, an intelligence-led operation, we're told. It was a complex operation, we're told, where troops stormed uh, a gar an apartment, a second-floor apartment that was heavily guarded and at the same time provided cover uh, by a bombardment of airstrikes. Now, according to the uh, health ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, at least 67 Palestinians died. There are other numbers out there, um, so that figure could well be higher. Um, what we know about the two uh, hostages who were rescued is that they are aged 60 and 70, Fernando Marman and Louis Haar. Uh, they are joint Israeli-Argentinian citizens. They're said to be in a good condition. Um, so obviously a great relief to their families and a great encouragement, I think, for um, the, the families of those who uh, are still being held by Hamas. But I must say, in the past few minutes, we've heard from Hamas, they claim that three Israeli hostages were killed in Israeli airstrikes. Hmm. And this area, Jonathan, is it Rafa is how you pronounce it, correct? That's correct. It, is where a great many people who now have been kind of refugees from other parts of the Gaza Strip have kind of ended up. So, you know, as these airstrikes continue, this is a lot of collateral damage we're seeing, especially as the as the international tone has turned, you know, towards talk of unfairness and genocide. And this 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 kind of attack is seems suddenly a little bit on the haphazard side relative to the reward of some of these people. What is the international community tone from your perspective towards the ongoing framework of this? Yeah, the, the, certainly there's a, a tone of great concern um, with a number of, of, of politicians and leaders around the world um, concerned about what Israel is going to do next. Let's just sort of talk our way through the way this war has progressed. First of all, Israel focused on northern Gaza. Remember, it's a, it's a tiny strip of land with 2.3 million people in it. They told people, leave northern Gaza, go south. Israel bombarded northern Gaza, then they bombarded central Gaza, told people go south. And now they say they are are preparing, it seems, to focus their efforts on southern Gaza, the Rafah area, um, where I believe around 80% of those people who 
have been displaced are uh, settled or, or rather are, are, are staying um, as hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so that's why the US government is saying, look, you shouldn't carry out a major operation around Rafa until there is a credible plan to secure the safety of those people. And today we've heard from the UK's Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron. He says Israel should stop and think seriously before taking more action. He says there's nowhere for people in Rafa to go. Yeah. What is the what is the approximate death toll now collectively um, in Palestine, at least as close as we can get, since we know that the, the Hamas authorities there is that they're, they're not auditing it or, or it's, they're asked to be audited, but they're not really showing that kind of proof. But what is the approximation that we have now is just shy of 30,000? Yeah, that's right. We we can't verify the information that the health ministry in Gaza uh, provides to us. It seems that most non-governmental organisations um, don't particularly dispute these figures. They say that more than 28,000 Palestinians have been killed and more than 67,500 injured. They we're also told today that uh, around uh, 13,000 of those who were killed were were uh, minors, that is children and young teens. Again, we can't verify that, but they gave that information to the Associated Press. Jonathan, as we, as you talk to folks like myself, who you know, we know the the Cliff Notes version, and you try and keep up with the news cycle. Very little is talked about, at least lately, about how much progress has been made in terms of exterminating the Hamas forces themselves. There was headlines you know, two, a couple months ago about some of the generals and the high-ranking Hamas officials that, that would, had been either killed or taken into custody. What is the progress level like now? Israel, obviously, they're in so deep, it's hard to turn back without, quote-unquote, finishing the job. But as the humanitarian side of things starts to look worse and worse and worse, it begs the question, are they actually closing in on finishing Hamas out? Well, we got a briefing today from um, the Israeli government. Um, they say that Hamas has been reduced to half of its fighting force. Then they say that more than 12,000 people um, who are Hamas fighters have been killed. They say uh, another large number are wounded or, or captured. They say, um, and the quote is, we're talking about three quarters of Hamas's battalions that have been shattered. Um, so, you know, that would suggest if that's true. Uh, and again, we can't verify these numbers. Uh, that would be a significant uh, amount of Hamas's fighting force, but it, it also tells you that they will still have thousands left, and there's no sign that any of the, the most senior leaders in Hamas have been killed. Um, we're, we're told various commanders on the ground um, have, been, have been taken out, but, but it doesn't seem that the most senior people have been uh, successfully targeted by Israel. But of course, um, that is who they are closing in on. I'm sure the, Israel's war aim, as well as returning all the hostages, is to destroy Hamas and to make sure that Israel can never be threatened um, from the territory of Gaza again. Is there, in your estimation, is there a more um, succinct, sniperish way of going after some of these folks that would alleviate some of the airstrikes? I mean, with everyone consolidated in such a small area now, having been forced to go there in many ways, is there a bit of an international cry to say, hey, okay, let's let's stop with the bombs and the, and the larger scale attacks and try to be a little more sneaky about this? Or is that not in the cards for Israel at this point? Well, to a great extent, it's very difficult for us to say. Um, but at the same time, there's no doubt that 
that Israel's uh, allies or, or would-be allies uh, in, in the West have uh, urged Israel to conduct their war in a way which minimizes civilian casualties. Uh, you know, the, the US government itself uh, spoke to people literally saying too many people have died in this war. And so they would like, I think, a more considered approach, you might say, a more uh, surgical or targeted approach. But of course, this is uh, a very dense territory, 2.3 million people, as we're saying. Um, it's densely packed. Uh, and Hamas have built networks of bunkers and underground tunnels. It, th this is all designed to make it hard for the uh, Israelis' uh, defense forces forces to, to seek out the, the leaders of, of Hamas and to target them. So it's a very difficult um, fighting environment. Jonathan, as I have asked you several times prior, is there any good news in this, in this environment, any, any glimmer of hope that you've begun to see despite what's happened the last few days? I don't really see any um, to report right now. No, um, I, I, you, you would. There's no doubt that it is good news that two hostages uh, were rescued. Um, of course, tempered by the potential bad news, if what I must say is correct, that three hostages died in airstrikes. Um, but at the moment, I think that the people are bracing themselves for um, things possibly getting uh, worse in terms of the humanitarian situation and in terms of the risk at which ordinary Palestinians are being placed. Yeah, what a mess. Well, thanks for your expertise. As always, Jonathan Savage is joining us. We have to pray for peace in that region and that this thing indeed does come to an end because it is as bloody and sad to, to think about and listen to as anything that I can recall. And, the, you know, it, geez, I don't know, Rieger, Two rights don't make a wrong. This thing, or two wrongs rather, don't make a right. I hope this does not continue to go on uh, for another year or so. Back in just a few minutes with our bun Dan Snow. All right, welcome back. And look, if you've been watching, I've been watching, everyone's been watching. It's not just Fox News anymore. Our, our president, uh, Joe Biden, is an old fella. He is a guy that has been rapidly, seemingly declining over the last couple of years. And it's something that even the left media can't ignore anymore. It's not just Fox. It's just kind of everywhere. And after this special counsel investigation last week and a couple of interviews, some of the kind of odd faux pas, lapses of memory, some of the anger that he showed, the frustration in, in response uh, to people in the press corps has really got everyone reeling. The question is, what is appropriate? Should we really be able to cognitively test the man who is, you know, arguably the most powerful person in the world? And then what do the Democrats do as they head into this election? Certainly looks like it would be a Trump showdown. The man who has some of those answers is Dan Snell. Dan Snell is the, is the author of The Winsome Candidate, The Winsome Way. is a political commentator and pundit and uh, a guy who's known to be fair and even-handed across the board. Dan, thanks for joining the program. Chris, great to be with you. I love, love Detroit. I'm a Lions fan, although I live in Kansas City. We had a pretty good day yesterday, but... But uh, football is an exciting thing in America, and people pay attention to it. I wish we paid attention as much to the election process always as we do to football, but uh, hopefully those days are ahead. Well, I think they probably are. There's a bit of a renaissance going on, in my opinion. What, you know, as a very even-handed guy, an old-school kind of Reagan fan like myself, when you look at this environment, I, I imagine, like me, you try to be as respectful as you can to the man in office and not disparage him for being elderly in general. 
But as you watch this, it is becoming very, very troublesome to watch some of the things that are said and some of the things that he, he just absolutely gaps on, is it not? Yes. I, uh, you know, I grew up in small town, small town America, a little town in Nebraska, David City, Nebraska. And my mom and dad always, you know, taught me to be respectful to whoever is the president of the United States. If you don't agree with their policies, then rally and campaign for someone, whether it's uh, your local officials or, or national. And so it was, a, it was a sad day. I mean, I genuinely was downhearted last Thursday evening when, when uh, President Biden was put in front of the microphones there, and especially with the earlier in the day, the report that came out and said he's a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I just, I hated to, to see that because sure. as Americans, we, we want to hope for better for our president. But it's gotten so negative that right now, I'm afraid it's reached a tipping point, a tipping point for President Biden, where he may not be able to recover, because that's going to be the talking point. That's always going to be the talking point. And I think behind the scenes, the Democratic Party is probably working to uh, prepare for a, a change on the ticket before we get to the uh, Democratic Convention in July. Sure. Dan, look, th- this before we get into what may happen as a as a potential replacement um, for the incumbent president. Going back in history, and you've been an elected official before, is there any kind of protocol that's actually set a standard for mental fitness? I mean, has this cognitively, has this ever really happened where it became a question of fitness to the degree where someone was able to say, look, we have a right to know, is this person capable of making decisions at this level? Yeah, you know, uh, historically, nationally, uh, you know, President Reagan, Reagan didn't live in the era of social media and everything is recorded and repeated and thrown out there and attacked. But in his uh, ending days, and I think he had some problems. I, I love President Reagan. I write about him in The Winsome Candidate and JFK. So I grew up in that era of leaders with a vision and, and that gave hope and, and put forth ideas. We really haven't had anything like this. And unfortunately, what exacerbates it is the social media, that you see clips and sound bites making people look horrible on both sides. But yeah. I, there, there has not been, you know, historically anything. You know, LBJ uh, originally announced he was going to run for president, and then he determined and, and gave a talk and did not run for president of the United States. So... Uh, we are in unprecedented times in the last uh, 10 years in, in politics, and so it'll just be another step. But my hope is that people will start paying attention to the actual uh, what's going on rather than just vote because they're against one person or the other. Well, Dan, on the note of the cognitive fitness, I mean, in, in as bipartisan as we have become nationally and with the exacerbation that you suggested from social media certainly you know a year ago when people were questioning mental fitness it was often seen as mean and mocking kind of mean-hearted towards the president himself but isn't is there any kind before we move on is there any kind of actual standard by which somebody on the right or on the left could say i demand i i'm calling on this particular you know uh, part of the pact that says he needs to be you know, stable cognitively to serve, and there has to be some kind of barometer for that, or does that not actually exist? If he chooses just not to do it, he wants to run again, the DNC lets him, can he just go ahead and completely ignore the calls for a fitness test? To the best of my knowledge, there is no standard or any guideline that says, okay, you must take a a test to, uh, 
to test your mind and your ability to lead, which, yeah. which, you know, I think we'll see something maybe change in that in the, in the coming years. Yeah. I just believe that no, no understanding politics behind the scenes, so many things happen and they will convince president Biden. And, and I would like to see him have a legacy as I do for all presidents have a legacy that holds more positive than negative. I don't like people that, you know, the, the winsome candidate is about, restoring public service as an ideal, as a vision of what you can do for your life and do some good and make the place you call home better. Yeah. So if President then, Biden- as we as we move on through this process, then we look at the upcoming convention for the DNC. This is coming down to the wire. And I think everyone who is intelligent realizes you could never put President Biden on a stage to debate against Donald Trump. It would be an absolute massacre at this point in terms of articulation. Do they make a change during the convention? And if so, what, what is your best guess on who they try to toss in there? Hmm. Well, you know, there's part of me that wonders would they try to bring back uh, Robert Kennedy into the fold. Uh, Gavin Newsom is always talked about, but I don't think Americans will vote for him as he's, you know, I don't say too Californian, but right now he needs to be more accepted nationally. Um, there's a great candidate, I think. Of course, it's He's more of a moderate Democrat. Governor Andy Brashear, he's a, in a, he's a Democrat and one in a Republican state. And I think even Republicans might consider him. And surprisingly, you don't hear much about her, but Amy Klobuchar, she has been in the news. This is what's interesting to me is she's been in the news with sound bites more in the last um, few days. So I don't know who it will, who it will be. But if, if the right message is given by President Biden, it could also shine the spotlight on the age, some of the gaps of Donald Trump, and maybe the Republicans, especially what could happen in these courtroom battles. Some of the things he said even over the weekend disappoint me as an American when you talk about uh, military people and NATO. And if he continues to say things that hurt, you may have in August, you may have behind the scenes something else taking place. Uh, with regards to the Republicans, then we'd be excited because we'd have a 75-day dash where Americans have to pay attention to yeah. the person, their character, their policies, their vision, their history, their experience. Wouldn't that be exciting if people would actually start paying attention and make it, for the first time in a long time, make a decision for someone instead of against? Yeah, a real a real do over would be interesting. Two entirely new candidates, and of course, Klobuchar is not a new candidate, and she's enormously qualified, despite the the fact that many people disagree with her politically. Do you find the outlier scenarios of like a, a Michelle Obama, for example, do you find that to be just kind of you know ET tonight fodder? It's not there's not really any legs to it. Yeah, you know, I forgot to mention her. A great point, Chris, in bringing her up. I've heard a lot about her, and even in the last month before the, the gaps of the last week. And you know, I say with a smile, when you sleep with the most powerful man in the world, you know, for eight years, she does learn a lot. She's had conversations, and she's, she's got charisma, and she's, she's got a lot of things that people might consider, depending on who would be the vice president uh, standing sure. with her. That might be an opportunity, because I think she – she certainly has some characteristics that would would gain attention. Yeah, yeah. N- name brand, if, if nothing else, is going to go a long way. Dan, thanks for joining the program. We used up the entire thing. Uh, your expertise is always welcome. Everyone, hang tight. We'll get your thoughts and commentary after the break. Well, all right. Uh, 
from one sad story to another sad story to another sad story, really. Uh, we're going to get upbeat at some point, talk a little bit of football and some fun Michigan things. But, you know, just a, a week or so after millions and millions of eyeballs all around the country were on our Detroit Lions and bringing some positive attention to the state, we had an equal, if not greater, amount of eyeballs on the Oxford shooting story, on the Crumbly family, uh, Jennifer Crumbly being the mom of, of Ethan who was standing trial for essentially enabling her son or not doing enough to prevent him from um, shooting and killing several students at Oxford High School. It's a very sad thing, but it's also a very fascinating thing from a legal standpoint. It may be what uh, serves as precedent going forward in cases much like these. We're lucky enough uh, to have Todd Flood join us. Todd is the managing partner of Flood Law. Todd, thanks for joining the program. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, listen, Todd, I, I watched as much as I could. I was traveling a lot last week and, you know, trying to read between the lines and look at some of the details. I think everyone kind of gets it, right? This is a mom who seemed somewhat unsympathetic, was a little bit unreliable in many ways, clearly didn't see the warning signs, or if she did, had other things to do, didn't pay attention, and a very distraught kid did a horrific thing and ended lives of other, of other young ones. And that's just, it's a horrific story. From a legal standpoint, a professional standpoint, as you watch some of this come down, what do we not, what does the average, you know, onlooker not know? What did you see in this trial that was a, really a tipping point that got her convicted? Well, listening to the jury foreperson in her interview, um, it was clear to her, at least, uh, that the tipping point was that she, uh, Jennifer Crumbly was the last adult that had the gun. and and. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that we understand she was texting uh, the person she was having the affair with on her way to that fatal day, uh, she was texting back and forth, uh, communicating with him, and he had asked where the gun was, and she claimed it was in his car or in her car. This is at the time she's going to see this uh, counselor and principal, and she is uh, confronted with this drawing. I think for others, and from our understanding of what the jury makeup was, it wasn't a unanimous verdict right out of the gate. Uh, it was a couple holdouts. And then, you know, as people went through the evidence and the fact pattern, I, I believe that the thing that sticks out most to me um, was that telltale day of November 30th, when they see this horrific depiction of disturbance, mental disturbance, not not like a photograph, but this young shooter basically draws this all out yeah. in detail and writes it out in detail and the thoughts won't stop and the blood's everywhere and a gunshot and a depiction of the gun that she bought or he bought, the uh, father bought for him. That disturbing, uh, you know, image in a parent's mind, just imagine yourself being a father going in and saying, oh, my gosh, my son right. just threw this and I gave him a gun and yeah. I got to do him, you know, Black Friday. And, you know, he's writing this out. I would do a timeout. I would take a timeout and say, hey, listen, you guys are recommending I got to get this young man into counseling. You're a pro, apparently, allegedly you're a pro anyway, school. Uh, I'm taking my kid into counseling right away. I'm taking him with me. This is not right. right. At the very minimum, I would have said, where's the gun? I, I don't think this is a case that 
you know, should shock anybody. You can't give a gun to a mentally disturbed child. That's, that's the bottom line. Something bad's going to happen. You can't give your car keys to your son who can't drive and is intoxicated. Something bad's yeah. going to happen. It's pretty simple. It's not rocket science. It's reasonably so, foreseeable if you did that. Uh, you know, he could take his own life. Did you see that, Todd, as you watch this, uh, the process ongoing, did you see a woman who clearly is sad? She's clearly upset. She was crying watching the the tape, some of the tapes she hadn't seen, but she also did seem a little bit disheveled and, and unreliable in some ways. Did she was, she was looking all the while, like she was guilty of something. Clearly there was a lot of malfeasance (laughs) going on there and bad parenting. And now as, as as the father goes to trial in what, just a few weeks, he's got a couple of um, I don't want to get out of jail free card. That's the, that's the wrong way to say it, but he's got, there's a few things that he may, or his team may have learned from her trial. Certainly the fact that he bought the gun doesn't help him, but the fact that she had it last and and really was kind of like, you know, the last line of defense, it it may uh, help his case some, and I'm not sympathetic to him, but he, that guy was bawling, um, screaming. I loved his son and, and what a terrible thing this is. If he comes off as a more, sympathetic person in this do you think he stands a chance to see a different fate well yes i mean you 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 know i haven't seen we've seen a lot of the evidence and i'm sure karen mcdonald has you know her her, um t's crossed and i's dotted ready to go within this case uh against uh the mr crumbly but certainly you're correct um her testimony forget you know it's not you can't judge somebody for them sitting in that chair they have this cloak of innocence sitting over them and you you can't you you know it stays there you can't pierce that cloak until the prosecution proves each and every element beyond a reasonable doubt they did that with her she was very unsympathetic on the stand she said she basically and i paraphrase that wouldn't really change anything which is you know jaw-dropping he on the other hand can come across and say, listen, I didn't realize Jennifer Crumbly took the gun out of the safe and left it in the, and left it in the car. I didn't really? realize she, you know, didn't have it, you know, secured. I didn't realize that, um, you know, it was her knowing that he could do something dumb. Uh, you know, that's what she texts, right? So he, I guess, you know, to your point, can have those defenses, and there's only two defenses in criminal law. It's either a yes, I did it, but I have a defense, an excuse that is an affirmative defense, either self-defense or whatever, or no, I didn't do it. It's either you got the wrong guy or a yes, but. So if it's the wrong guy, he's going to say, here's the two people responsible. You got the shooter and you got the wife. And the wife is, uh, you know, tried to incriminate me, but in essence, she was the one, as jurors point out, that had the gun last as an adult i see that but you know there's going to be a lot of evidence and a lot of text messages and a lot of knowledge um that i'm sure karen mcdonald has that the joe six pack for all of us hasn't haven't seen yeah um, listen Todd, for but, from a professional standpoint you're looking at the nuance yeah. that many of us don't know to pick up on i wonder if we remove all of our, our prior biases about the people, the shooting, the, the painfulness of that hitting so close to home, when you look at something like this as a professional that will serve now as precedent for many other cases that are similar in nature, is this good for the country 
or is it something that could be a very slippery slope when we talk about parental responsibility for a minor? It's got to be a quick answer. Sorry for that. Thing, but... And I know we, I, I know we're running out of time, but the biggest question and your question is mental health. You know, this is cries out, screams out for acknowledgement of mental health, and mental care, and we, we don't have a system equipped for it. I don't think, you know, there is cases, plenty of cases where parents have been charged when they don't take care of their gun um, and they have noticed that uh, uh, someone could use it and they've been charged. Strip all of it away. What does this case do? Yeah. Boil it down to a common factor around the country for mass shooting. Messy thing. Todd, thanks for joining. 800-859-0957. If you have any thoughts on the shooting, we'll turn the hour. We'll come right back to you. Well, that was informative. Not all that much fun, but it was informative. And I have some thoughts on that. I'd like to hear from you, too. It's probably the only time we'll have time for calls today. 800-859-0957. Do you think Jennifer Crumbly should be going to prison for the full 15 years? Is she truly responsible or is she taking one for the team and setting a precedent that parents have to wise up and pay attention to this stuff? Not only the mental health side, but if you're going to have a weapon in the house, you got to lock that sucker up because bad things can happen. Look, I can't be remiss on this. Yeah, I have to announce Secretary Yellen is joining Governor Whitmer at the Detroit Economic Club on Wednesday, the 14th, Valentine's Day. Ticket sales, though, close at 4 p.m. today. So if you're interested, econclub.org, econclub.org is where you can nab those tickets. Rieger, after listening to Todd Flood, um, has anything changed in your mind in this Crumbly case? I mean, what do you think happens going forward with the dad? I mean, I think he's probably going to get the same punishment. I think um, that uh, the landscape has changed now. A uh, new precedent has been set. And I think moving forward, uh, like I said, parents are going to have to really pay attention to what's going on in their kids' lives because n- not only more, I mean, not not anymore are you going to, is the, is the kid going to only be in trouble for something that they do? The, the parents can be held responsible now too. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I struggled with in doing the reading on this was there wasn't a tremendous amount of backstory in terms of how long those kind of thoughts and behavior were going on. I mean, it's not as if, from what I can tell, there wasn't years worth of the of the kid talking like this and displaying a lot of violence, kind of a meek, quiet kid. It seemed rather sudden. If the father goes into this environment crying and clearly upset, which he was, I don't think that would be a, a dramatization by any stretch, saying, look, I just didn't know. I didn't know it was this bad. Any any parent of a teenager, especially those who have gone through kind of a morose time in their life, a depressive time in their life, which is easy to see. I mean, it's not always easy to, to see the details of it, but when your kid gets quiet and they're oftentimes reclusive and they just want to be by themselves and nothing seems to make them happy and they kind of stare daggers at you sometimes, you're like, what is wrong with you, man? Look at all the good things in your life. No, that's me. Clearly, though, if he gets on on uh, on the trial and he says, look, yeah, I bought the gun, right? We are going to go to the shooting range together. This is not uncommon for people who are not around guns much. It is not uncommon to teach kids how to shoot. My kids know how to shoot. We have a safe full of guns. I'm not afraid that one of them would use them, but they're also locked up. He can say, I bought the gun. I locked it up. The last one that took it out was her, by the way, and she was cheating on me, by the way, which is maybe only anecdotal, if nothing else. But if that gun went from mom's purse somehow into kid's backpack on a day that they get called in because uh, the teacher or the counselor was made aware of these really grotesque drawings and things, that should have been, to me, a sign that the school should have sent him home. 
You know, that's rather unclear too. Didn't you mention to me in, in past I thought that I, had, I thought that I had heard or read that they called the parents in and they wanted to take him home and they, uh, the parents left him there. So, so you're, you're, you heard that the school was trying right. to get the parents to take yes. him home. And they I, said, no, I thought that, I thought that's how it went. I thought. I could be wrong. I don't know. That doesn't, and I, I remember, you know, when we were talking about this with Marie, the school had, you know, a whole handful of things that they could right. have, should yeah. have done so, differently. Yeah. And look, if that was my kid and I saw something like that and it was truly a shock, i.e. I've never seen you express something of this magnitude before. This is gross. I'd be pulling them by the arm out. We'd go sit down for a hamburger and a Coke. And I'd probably be crying to him, please tell me what's on your heart and your mind because there's a way to work through this. I mean, no one wants to kill other people. Clearly, when he's talking, when the, in, you know, I don't want to do all this verbatim on the radio, obviously, but he was hurting inside that kid. He didn't want to do this stuff. He was scared and fearful. Man, it's such a strange thing to think about the mental health crisis in general. And where else does it go? Does it get into drugs? I mean, I mentioned to you, if, if you enable your child who maybe gets into drugs as the example, and you don't, you find out, but you don't force them into rehab or something like that or get them on some kind of program, especially when you look at things like the fentanyl abuse and, and, and oxy and all the other things that have been, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the adolescent community. If one of them commits a crime, driving a car, right, is the parent responsible then? How far can this thing go? Mom didn't shoot kids at a school. I mean, yeah, I, you know, it's uh, like I said, everything's changed now. Everything is this this uh, sentence that came down now moving forward. If you're a parent, you have to be aware of this. You have to be more present in the in your kids lives. You know, if they're going to go and do what what he did, then the parents are going to be held responsible. I mean, it's a new precedent, right? Yeah, it's I mean, really every case, I mean, every super. case, every case is individual. Obviously, every case is not the same. But I think that we see now that this that the parents are going to be held more responsible. And environmentally, I mean, that's the other thing that at this point no one's really talking about. But I think we should be talking about it because all of this, even when the gun control conversations, which we have had several when I've been hosting, oftentimes the, the guns aren't the problem. It's the mental health crisis, the mental health crisis, the mental health. That's true. Largely, it's true. But what environmentally is planting seeds in the heads of young people that this kind of violence is either fashionable or a way to express those emotions. I can't imagine, uh, obviously, I don't think you could either. What is it, what is it like to actually think that somehow or another, I will be satiated by murdering innocent people? Is it Hollywood to a degree that, that glorifies violence so grotesquely? Is it the video games? I mean, even the first person shooter games that so many of the kids, including mine, play these like you know, prisoner of war type things, they're very, very violent. What is the familiarity with that kind of violence that makes a, a kid at that age want to have it manifest? I, I don't I don't get it. No, I mean it's really yeah, it, it it could be any one of those things. You know, it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really sad. So it'll be, I guess, a fascination to watch that if, if dad gets a different sentence than mom and so on and so forth. Let's try and get out to the phones. We only have time to take um, one, probably. Let's let's visit with Ann and Metamora. Hi, Ann. Ann, do we have you? 
Yeah, it doesn't sound like I have Anne on there. Oh no, Are go you... to uh, no, go to David in Detroit. All right, David in Detroit, what's happening? Uh, uh, you know, discussing this case uh, and just looking at it, the the shooter was is being called a child. But then he got three life sentences. I, I think that's how it worked. So those were adult sentences. He's tried as an adult and sentenced as an adult. But then they call him a child, and then they blame the parents. It, it just it it doesn't jive. It's 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 spooky politics in the court. Hmm. How, yeah. Well, how old was uh, was Ethan? Seventeen at the time of shooting. I have. I have. I'd have to look back in my notes. I don't look. I there's a is the devil in the details in that one, Dave. That's a really interesting point. I mean, sometimes you're going to get tried as a minor. Sometimes you're going to get tried as an adult. I think in this case, personally, he should be tried as an adult because he murdered other you know would be adults in in short order. I mean, teenagers in, in most cases of the law are not tried as minors for something like that. But that's an interesting thing to think about. Charlie out in Clarkston, what's happening, Charlie? Yeah, guys. I would like to set the record straight once and for all. My wife was a special ed teacher at the Warren Consolidated School System. She passed away some time ago. We used to discuss these issues every time that she sensed that someone would come to her that had an emotional problem. That kid could not come back to school until that problem was addressed. The school system in Oxford failed. It is the school system's fault. It should never have happened. Why did they fail? It has something to do with the school system looking bad. There there are uh, attorneys right now that are pursuing it, but this should never, ever have happened. Let's set the Charlie, thank you for the for Charlie, thank you for the call. There is certainly fault all around in this very sad story. Everybody stick around. We're going to lighten the mood and talk a little bit of football with Anthony Bellino right around the corner. Right on to some football. Day following a big Super Bowl, Super Bowl number 58, 115 million people tuned in to watch some of the usual suspects battle it out. And we're lucky enough to have Anthony Bellino, co-host of JR's Sports Wrap, heard every day from 6 to 7. Anthony, what's happening, buddy? Chris, how are you, my friend? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's fun to talk about something a little bit more lighthearted than school shootings and the Gaza Strip and Biden's memory slipping. Good grief. I wish the Lions were playing. We can get into that a touch. But after the brokenheartedness, it was a pretty good football game, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a uh, it was a really good football game. You know, I, I always I always find it interesting. You know, with with your comment right there, the uh, the quote about like uh, you know when things were going wrong in the Roman Empire, they would just bring out the games, and you know here here comes the circus to, to town to distract people. And wow, did the NFL do a really good job of that last night? I thought that CBS's uh, overall production from their intro, some of their storytelling with some of their uh, you know pre pre packaged stuff, I, I thought that that was sensational then we're getting getting into kickoff you know a lot of people were disappointed with uh, maybe a lackluster first half but I mean that's football and football is supposed to be about playing defense football is about field position it's not just about highlights and fantasy stats and I thought that this game had a really good mix of both as you know the first half was kind of like two heavyweight fighters trying to gauge their distance throwing a lot of jabs in the early rounds uh, before the big swings came in in the second half and then to have 
overtime with their new overtime uh, that they were rolling out here for the playoffs in the Super Bowl. I thought it was just a it was a it was a win across the board. Didn't enjoy the overall broadcast that much, but you know that's that's another story for another day. Yeah, you know, everyone's particular about the broadcast. I mean, we all have guys we like. I love hearing Tariko. I think he's fabulous. I used to I used to really loathe Joe Buck, but I've I've kind of grown to like him. Nance I get tired of, but I want to hear Nance on golf, but not on football. You know, everyone's got their opinion. That the couple of fumbles in the first half that we saw, especially after really, really good offensive movement of the ball was the only real reason that that was such a low scoring thing. The ball was being moved in that first half. It just didn't amount to anything on the scoreboard. Yeah, I mean, back-to-back, uh, you know, San Francisco fumbles the football in their f- first possession, and they're they're driving down the field, right? I mean, they're feeling really good. First and 10 at the Kansas City 29 before Christian McCaffrey, of all people, coughs it up. And then their defense comes right out and gets a three and out uh, against Kansas City. Later on in the game when it's three to nothing, here's uh, Isaiah Pacheco with an opportunity uh, to make a play first and goal to San Francisco 9, and he put it on the turf. And I thought that that was a very interesting kind of storyline how – you know, maybe that first fumble was going to change the complexion of the game. Both defenses did a good job uh, forcing immediate punts uh, on the on the ensuing possessions. And, you know, with the turnover battle, you think, you know, you, you typically if you win the ground game and you win the turnover battle, you should be able to win the game. And, you know, you look at the Chiefs with their fumble, but that was it. Brock Purdy was pretty clean, 255 yards, a touchdown, no interceptions, only 110 yards as a team on the ground. Patrick Mahomes taking over late in that game with some of the carries that he had to, he just tucked the ball and said, I'm going to do this yeah. myself. I'll carry it my, my own self with 66 yards on the ground. So they lost the turnover margin, but won the ground game, won that rushing battle. Cause you still have to be able to, uh, to run the football and run, run it effectively. I thought it was very interesting in the first half, Travis Kelsey with one target, one catch and one yard receiving until he broke out in the second half with, uh, with, you know, eight receptions and 92 yards. So lot a lot of, you know, they had their little kerfluffle there on the sideline between Travis Kelsey and head coach Andy Reid on the play in which Pacheco had fumbled. Like, I thought that there were, there, there were so many directions that game could have gone, you know, leading into today's, you know, nonstop 24-7 sports media realm that I was, uh, yeah, I was very surprised by the outcome. Anthony, looking at the Chiefs as kind of a, a model now of uh, a bit of a dynasty we're, we're seeing emerge, right? I mean, this is clearly uh, not a rinse and repeat because they've changed their identity a little bit now in the last few seasons, becoming far more defensive. What's the recipe that stands out to you that Andy Reid has done such a good job with? Because clearly this team's not done. They're not on their way out. They're still in their prime. A lot of their contracts are relatively in, in the prime sense. They're not losing a ton of people. And Look, Patrick Mahomes is a stud. The guy can just take over a ball game, much like Tom Brady used to do. Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, like what the what the Kansas City Chiefs can do uh, is they have a go to guy in the pass game in Travis Kelsey. Uh, they believe in running the football. Uh, they did tweak their offensive line a little bit. Joe Tooney was down last night, wasn't able to play, uh, so that hurt them at left guard. But outside of that, uh, they have they have the mix of you know we're going to reinvest in our defense. You know, Chris Jones got a huge contract, and he was all over the place causing havoc. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have 30 tackles and 10 sacks, right? I mean, what you have to do is you have to be able to find a front four 
that can get to the quarterback without any help. And I think that when you do that defensively, you have so many more options in your back seven, whether you want to drop them into coverage, whether you want to disguise a blitz, you know, if you want to run a quarterback spy, if you're worried about the opposing quarterback, like it just makes you so much more versatile when you're able to bring pressure with four. They have two lockdown corners on the outside that are very, very difficult, uh, you know, to go up against. You have this, this quarterback that is, Next level, the best of his generation. I mean, that's what it is. It's interesting that, you know, 20 years ago was the last time uh, that there was a repeat Super Bowl champion, and here we are 20 years later, that other champion, that was Tom Brady, and here we go with Patrick Mahomes and kind of, you know, passing the torch on to him, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, you have four Super Bowl berths in five years. You win three out of the five, and you go back-to-back. This is definitely dynasty uh, material, but Kansas City has all the goods. And what what I think is – Really interesting. If you're a Lions fan, you're watching that game. Okay, so you beat the eventual Super Bowl champions. Had San Francisco lost, you would have lost to the Super Bowl champions. But this is right. really this is this is your this is the table you're sitting at now, right? You are the company uh, that you keep. This is what is expected of you. And I think the the Lions truly do have the right mix of guys. I think that they will find you know that Jameson Williams going into year three is really going to come into his own and can be a number one option. They've got the guy that can work the middle of the field in Amon Ross St. Brown. They have a franchise tight end. Uh, They have two good running backs. They continue to invest in the offensive line. I think you look defensively, they definitely need uh, a number one corner because that is just an area that we lacked in so bad. We've got good depth at safeties. Maybe maybe uh, an additional linebacker because Derek Barnes going down. You know who knows how long it's going to take for him to get back up, and then you have to get some help along the defensive line. You need somebody on the opposite end of Hutch, and you need some help in the interior as well. Sure, yeah, Anthony. I think you and I would be simpatico on this as we watch our Lions this season start out with a bang, obviously coming off of an incredible amount of momentum from the prior season, and then go through a weird lull where. You know, Goff can't stop fumbling the ball, and he's throwing picks like he's got one eye closed. And everyone says, okay, here we go again. Very much like the Kansas City Chiefs, who are now going to hoist another Lombardi trophy. They lost four or five games that they easily could have won, and they looked really lackluster. I think we learned something as fans this year that, A, it's football. And in the NFL, anything can happen. You know, every cliche applies there. But, B, if you have the right mix of talent and guys and the right attitude in the locker room, you can win these games. I think the Detroit Lions have a far better chance of making it to the to the Super Bowl next year than a San Francisco 49ers team who's been there twice and failed. They're questioning their leadership right now, and everybody in that Detroit locker room, they believe wholeheartedly in theirs. Yeah, that's a uh, – that, you know, I thought was very interesting. So after the game, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs players were asked about the new overtime, and they talked about how for the last two weeks they had a game plan. If this thing goes into overtime and San Francisco gets the ball first, we are going to go down, score, and go for two, right? And they talked about rehearsing it for two weeks. Everybody was on the same page. That's what they were going to try to do. The same question was pitched to the San Francisco players, and they and a couple of them, Eric Armstead being one of them, said that he learned about the, the change in the overtime rule where both teams would possess the ball. He learned about that on the video board as it was happening in real time when they put the explanation up there uh, at Allegiant Stadium. I think that that is, that, that's just preposterous, but that goes to show you the, the preparedness, right? And I think that one thing that Dan Campbell's group has really done a good job of is they've got the, the ultimate buy-in from their players. Players are here. The guys that are here believe in being here. They believe in what they are doing. They believe in each other. They play for one another. We don't have any real off-the-field issues. We don't have any crazy egos. We've got a lot of guys that are going to put their hard hat on 
uh, that are going to go to work. I think that's really relatable uh, for this for this Lions team, and I think it puts us up in great position to be successful. I'm with you. Thanks for joining the program, man. As always, we have a lot to be excited about here in Detroit. We can celebrate uh, a little bit for the Kansas City Chiefs knocking off the guys who knocked us out, but hopefully we'll be back there soon, and we'll be back to you in just a few minutes after the break. Thank you very much, Chris. Okay, welcome back into Focus for, what, three, four hours last night. Dave, you and I, and most of the world, 100 million plus here in the United States, watched the Super Bowl, watched the Chiefs face off against the 49ers. And, of course, there's this massive contingent of folks who aren't necessarily invested personally in football, but they, they get the popcorn ready and they break open some beers and they watch just for the commercials. And we know we know how much these things are going for, $7 million, $10 million, $15 million for some of these spots. Some of them are funny. Some of them bring in cameos and all kinds of interesting things. And the question is, is the, is the juice worth the squeeze? Do these commercials really do anything? And to joining us now as marketing strategist and the CEO of Mog XP, work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies. Sheila Rondeau, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me. Sheila, as you watched last night, what was your overall impression of the collective work of all the advertisers in last night's Super Bowl? It was good. It wasn't great. We've had years that are great. Um, the last handful, I feel, are a little lackluster, but um, overall, it was solid. Okay, so was there, if you had to grade them out, was there one particular winner that you felt like, wow, that was a home run that that company just put on the screen? Whether you like the commercial or not, I think the Verizon commercial with Beyonce was the winner for the brand. And why I say that was it's entertaining. People like Beyonce. They, they engaged people. Nobody walked away while the commercial was on. And it repeatedly talked about Verizon's message. And when you're going to spend that kind of money that the brands do, you got to get the message in there. And they did repeatedly. You know, that's an interesting point. And you study this for a living. I often wonder, and this is not Super Bowl specific, but certainly things like, for example, the Geico lizard. And there's plenty of things that have just become somewhat comical where there isn't really a lot of presentation of the value that something's offering. They're just trying to stand out to be funny enough where everybody talks about it the next day at work. Is that, does anything change for the Super Bowl? Or are they all trying to make the funniest or the most unique thing just to make their name stand out? And they do that at the cost of presenting value sometimes? The worst thing that can happen to a Super Bowl advertiser is the next morning everybody is talking about a commercial that they really liked Remember the brand. And when that happens, did all of that money. Hmm. Is, do you have an example of that? Like what would be a one that everyone's talking about because it was entertaining or it was funny or it was mysterious, but then they can't quite link it to the, the advertiser itself? I think there were a couple that, that kind of go in that category. Um, and I'm trying to think of, of one off the top of my head. Um, I think the state farm is good. I don't know that it really connects well back. Um, when you start talking about the um, some of the like the elf cosmetics, I don't know that 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 was a good representation of their brand. Is People there any, lost that? 
Sheila, in terms of pricing, these companies don't spend, you know, $10 million or more if they're advertising multiple times, you know, on a whim. Is there any difference in value, for example, in the beginning of the broadcast towards close to halftime when some people may be tuning in just for that? Is there a gradient of that pricing or is it pretty much static across the board? I think it's pretty static. Um, I, I don't buy a lot of media personally um but across the board you know there's there's always a a a discount beforehand um i think what they really look at is which ones are are positioned well according to where the other items are placed and and you don't necessarily get to do that if you look at it how many times have you seen car commercials back to back like that's a big no-no um speaking of car commercials that's one of the huge misses this year is there was not any U.S.-based car companies that advertised yep. this year. But there was a, a domination in the space for snacks and soda drinks and things like that. I mean, it, how, how many Doritos and, and cookie commercials can you see? It, it's a little it's a little much. What did, on that note, what did you think about the Ben Affleck appearance for the little Dunkin' Donuts commercial that they ran? I think they did a nice job on that. It fits the brand very well. Duncan's tends to be kind of quirky, tongue-in-cheek, and they've always had that that feel to them. So the the J Lo and Ben Affleck and and Tom Brady that that whole group it was authentic to their brand. So it it made it it made the cut. Yeah, and some of the reunion stuff, that's a good point, the J-Lo and Ben Affleck. I don't follow Hollywood stuff much, but even like the Friends people coming back for what, uh, was it um, Uber Eats or whatever it was, and then we saw something with the with the uh, cast from Suits, you know, the show that had done so well for such a long time, which is now on Netflix and is kind of seeing a little bit of a renaissance popularity-wise. That's a very interesting thing to think about also, because it's not just buying the ad time. Certainly the companies must be forking out a tremendous amount of money to have these celebrities come on to do these cameos, right? Oh, yes. If you look at the star power last night, the money that was spent is just amazing. Hmm. Well, why do you think, you know, in closing out, why do you think that these commercials haven't kind of hit the iconic status lately i mean there's what what could they do if you were advising them to get back to when it was just you know the the commercial ratings was a big conversation post super bowl my biggest thing i tell brands always and and i see it over and over again and they spend such a huge amount of money to make these but some of them just don't come off as authentic to the brand you want to entertain, you want to engage, you either want to pull on heartstrings or you want full belly laughs. And they try so hard for that, but if it doesn't ladder back to the brand and it isn't authentic to the brand, it just misses. Yeah. Huh, interesting stuff. Sheila Rondo, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I'm sure everyone will be talking about one that they liked, one that made them laugh, or one that pulled on their heartstrings. Thanks again for joining. Dave, as you watched last night, was there anything that jumped out at you that really made you have a deep chuckle? I mean, going back to Spuds McKenzie, there's been a lot of really funny ones. You know, I mean, remember the dude commercials from Bud Light? I, the dude commercials are cult classics. What is the what is the nowadays version of the dude commercial? You know, by, by far, I felt that the Dunkin' Donuts commercial with Ben Affleck was the best last night. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. 
if you want to talk about uh, tugging on the heartstrings, obviously the commercial that uh, they ran after Rob Gronkowski missed the kick of Destiny 2, and they had a thank you to Carl Weathers, who was training him in the commercials leading up to the kick. And obviously he passed away last week, and uh, that one uh, made me actually very sad. So um, yeah. those would be the two. Uh, I also enjoyed the Christopher Walken uh, EV commercial where he went around driving the EV and everybody was imitating his voice wherever he went. I thought that one was, was well. Was that a BMW commercial? Yeah, it was a BMW for their EV. So I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. Big Christopher Walken fan, so I thought that one was great. Yeah, they were running a tease for that over the last few weeks. I saw yeah. a few times where he said it was an ad for an ad. Right. But, you know, he's a funny human being he anyway is. and kind of a kodgy, odd sense. Yeah, you know, he's I fantastic. He's just great. Most people like him. Yeah. Well, so... you know, I, I am a, a guy that loves to make fun, mock, mercilessly commercials. I do this with my kids all the time and my wife, and they get upset with me and say, why do you care so much? I say, well, I care because it's not even, you're not telling me why your product is better or what the value proposition is at all. You're just trying to do something silly enough where I kind of remember it. And I've always been a little bit curious about how in the world the wireless companies, the, the Verizons, the T-Mobiles, Sprint, so on and so forth, they can advertise so much as if everyone's going to buy a new phone you know, right. every couple of months, they're not. I mean, every two, three years. So why spend that much money? It must work. Right. And and by oh, the way, uh, shout out to Spuds McKenzie. I love Spuds McKenzie back in the day. That was, yeah, that was he was cool. he was America's number one party animal, obviously. For those of us who remember. But you know, honestly, most people who remember Spuds McKenzie have no idea who Usher is. So let's be fair. There's a little bit of a conflict. Yeah, I would say, <laughs> you know, uh, Usher, I thought, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Usher was also at the end I of that uh, of that EV commercial, too. So that was pretty good. Yeah, give us some Rolling Stones or a country star or something that's, uh, that runs the generations. That'd be kind of cool. All right, listen, we'll be back after the break. Lots of interesting things coming up. Stay tuned. Well, as we close today out, it's been lively. We will get to a little Chris Renwick, a little Chris Squared, as I call it. But I do have to remind you, be caller nine. At one 800 wjr to win a stay-and-play package for two, including a night's accommodations at Marine City's premier boutique hotel, the Inn on Water Street, and tickets to experience the Riverbank Theater's production of Bonnie and Clyde, playing now through March 10th. Adventure and romance await in the larger-than-life true tale of one of history's most notorious couples. During the height of the Great Depression, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow captured the nation's imagination. With their infamous rise from small-town West Texas nobodies to American legends. Bonnie and Clyde celebrates American musical genres like the blues, gospel, and rock and roll. It's an electrifying story of fame, a life of crime, and love. For more information and official contest rules, visit WJR.com. Chris Renwick, how did I do on that one? It was well done. It's a seasoned veteran. I, I'm clearly in the rookie camp, but you can be sweet and tell me that I did a good job. That's okay. I like reading those things. It's good practice. You know, I read a lot of Shel Silverstein. Did you know that? Do you really? Tons. Look at you. I'm, I'm fairly obsessive about um, whimsical poetry. All my kids grew up on Shel Silverstein, and now little Jolene, who's going to be three here in another couple months, we read poems every night. She won't let me read the long ones. She gets bored pretty fast, and I get bored pretty fast. Uh -huh. But I find it to be an excessively good tool for linguistics. If you really want to master the art of flow and articulation, read Shel Silverstein. Yeah, those are in our rotation in our house as well. Five, five and two. Yeah. So we've got 
We've got uh, between Shel Silverstein and and um, Doctor Seuss, where we we're, we've got our tongues tied Dr. for sure. This is another good one. Yeah, I, the Sneeches is one of my favorite literary works of all time. Class mm. Warfare by Doctor yeah. Seuss. It's <laughs> a good one. Hey, um, we talked early in the day about Super Bowl stuff, and the, you're one of the guys that I would bounce this off of. What was your actual take on the on the Black National Anthem? controversy if you want to call it that do you do you really care if they sing that song and if so do, do, should people be standing or should everyone just shush and let them play the song i you know um let me tell it to you like this i uh i recently saw the barbie movie a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago and uh i thought it was horrendous i i'm not quite sure how it it got the accolades that it did but then i remembered this isn't for me it's not for me. This is I'm not their demographic. Uh this is this has nothing to do with me. So uh I I was separated myself from that thought. Last night I it's not for me. I don't care. Like right. I, it, it doesn't really matter. As long as you play the national anthem, which they did, uh who was that? Reba? Fine job. I mean, like I it, it doesn't matter. I'm there to watch football. So uh you, you you do the, yeah, the pageantry. It's twenty before the start of the game. Yeah, Let I them don't. sing the song. You know, okay, fine. It's it's not that big of a deal, but it is a big deal when the when the people on the left get upset that most of the fans are sitting. These are the same people that got obsessively mad when people on the right were upset that athletes were kneeling during the national. Well, anthem I mean, to be years. fair, I mean uh, uh, that is not the national anthem, though. I know that's, so my, that's my point. How I, would you how would you know if you're supposed to be standing? Am I supposed to be standing? I no. don't I don't know how anybody can be upset about that because that's not the national anthem. So I mean, I, it's, again, I, that, that's that to me is so silly. Like it's it's so nonsensical. It's it's people making an issue out of something that is it is a byline of a byline of a byline. Like it it this doesn't matter to me. I get it. We talked a little bit about uh, Biden's mental fitness. Clearly, this is uh, not just a Fox News headline anymore. It's getting yeah. getting worse by the day, especially after the special counsel reports from last week. I think they swap them out uh, and have a convention. Well, Who let, do you think can, they throw in there? Can, can I ask you something about sure, that? Yeah. I, yeah. I asked the, the audience the other day, you know, uh, you go back to like Clinton. Um, you know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman or Nixon. I am not a crook. Like these proclamations of go like and those were turning points in their presidencies, right? Sure. They they were they were landmark horrific moments for their presidencies. Like I looked at that press conference the other night and I said, This is that. It was bad. It is it is the moment of you trying to reassure the American people that not only are you competent to run for reelection, but that you're capable of doing the job now. And then and then he mixes Mexico up with with Egypt. I mean, it doesn't make any like it, it reassured no one. And if if anything, it, it only, I think, shown a spotlight that this guy is struggling. I, I don't know who they put in there. Look, one I mean, of the brightest people in the entire universe of D.C. Is, is David Axelrod. And he's been that for a long, long time, whether or not you agree with his politics. He's been chirping the same thing for, for months and months. Yeah, they, you can't possibly think that the American people would be okay without a series of debates to address the issues of the day. Mm -hmm. And no one in their right mind thinks that you could put Joe Biden on a stage with someone as in command of the issues as they see them as Donald Trump. It would be an absolute. Put put him on a debate stage with RFK. I mean, it would be, it would be a bloodbath. I think, I think you have a Michelle Obama presidency uh, presidential run looming. 
not a presidency, I shouldn't have said it that way, because she's the only one I think that grabs almost every key demographic. It grabs people in the middle, it grabs women, it grabs the black community. She clearly is a very, very astute woman who spent eight years in the Oval Office and, and, and as someone earlier today put sleeping with a man who was running the world. And she would be very, very hard to dislike personally. Sure. Right. I mean, I don't know how that is not their candidate. It's not going to be Gavin Newsom. He's too glib. He's he's kind of a tool as a guy's in our Well, then it's your governor. I don't think so. I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I, I don't just I don't agree with a lot of what Gretchen Whitmer does, certainly politically. But um, she has done she's something. Politician. Uh, right. But I mean, she's done something that Democrats, uh, I mean, they, they lick their chops at. And that is she has turned Michigan blue. I mean, yeah. she 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 was able to help flip the the the, the legislature in Lansing, uh, the the Supreme Court, and through her leadership, I mean, they have gotten a lot of big things done. So I I, I don't know. Could be. I think she's more likely than Klobuchar, but I think that Obama is the safest bet. I think you're you're attaching a name brand that has staying power at a moment when they just don't have a choice and it's going to be an extremely quick run at that point. You're not looking for background. You don't want people to go investigate. Well, how's Michigan really been? Sure. How they sure. COVID? Right. She's a very, very easy. No, winning. you need somebody ready-made. You're right. Yeah, I get it. Have a great show today. I will check in with you next Monday. That'll work the rest of the week. Thanks man. Have a good one. You too.